when I was first practicing as a young man, <clears throat> I was looking around for where to practice, where I could meditate with people. And somebody uh, suggested I go to Zen Center in San Francisco. <clears throat> and so I went to Zen Center, which I liked uh, very much because you could just go in for the sitting at 5.30 in the morning and not talk to anybody. And then you could leave and still not talk to anybody when the sitting was got done. And that I thought was a perfect way to practice with people. Uh, <laughs> not very relational, <laughs> but uh, I got to sit. And um, and uh, and I ended up doing some more practice at Zen Center and Tassajara and Green Gulch. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things I always loved was how they called you to practice in Zen Center. And they'd have a thick piece of wood, very thick piece of wood, like that thick. And it'd be hanging up, big piece, and they would bang it. They would go... very slowly. And wherever you were in the building or in the grounds, you would, you would start to hear this. And then it would start to speed up. And once it was done when they'd gone through that. If you weren't in the zendo, you couldn't get in. So it was a very um, direct way to say, now's the time, now's the time to practice, and here's, it's happening now, right, with every knock on this thick piece of wood. And then uh, if you didn't, if you weren't, committed, you were outside and you didn't get let in. And we're, we're much nicer here, you know, if, I mean, in a certain way, but, but and, and partly I'm saying all of this because the piece of wood that they were hitting had words written on it. And the words were very um, touching to me. And the words that were, at least when I was there, it said, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. And birth hyphen and hyphen death is how it was written. Great is the matter of birth and death, right? And they're all connected, not separate. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And so that sound on that wood with that message was what was calling everybody to practice. Great is the matter of birth and death. Connected, all connected. And I always, and still, really appreciate that call to practice. It moved me as a young man. It still moves me.
and I was looking up some current statistics about birth and death. There are four births every second of every day. Four new human beings come into the world every second of every day. Right. And two people die every second of every day. <clears throat> right? Great is a matter of birth and death, and they're connected. And so there's 250 births each minute, at least in the statistics that I got from Google. Google Buddha, Buddha Google, something like that. 105 people die each minute. 15,000 births each hour. 6,316, very precise there, people die each hour, right? And so in their statistics that I got on the web, there are 360,000 births every day on the planet Earth. And there are 151,600 people dying every day on planet Earth. And let's just see what happens as you just hear, that's what's happening here. That's that's very normal thing to happen here at, on Earth, that people are being, being born and people are dying. Right? At least in some guess that it's estimated at 151,600 people are dying every uh, day across the planet and all the different continents and countries and locales and cities and villages and rural areas. <clears throat> and the death is acknowledged across many different cultures, right? And I think you all know there's something we have called Halloween Everybody know Halloween, right? It's kind of a Western um, tradition. And the word Halloween is, was originally All Hallows Eve or All Saints Day. And it, in, in 1745, in the Christian tradition, it meant hallowed evening or holy evening. Halloween meant holy evening. And it was to celebrate um, with playful spirit, the, with prayerful spiritual bond between those in heaven and those alive, right? And that's where the whole tradition of, of Halloween that many of us have celebrated as children comes from, is in some ways communing with the people who are not here anymore. Or in the, in the, Latino, Spanish com communities, the Day of the Dead, Dio de, de More, Mortos, thank you. Um, family and friends pray for and remember friends and family members who have died, right? And help, and help support their spiritual journey 
with their prayers and their good wishes. And in the Buddhist tradition, there's something, in the Japanese Zen tradition, there's something called Sagaki. And Sagaki is a ceremony for spirits or departed ones, of departed ones. A ceremony for the spirits of departed ones summons forth all restless spirits, spirits and pacifies their agitation within and without. And one reads the names of close friends and family who have died. And Kobenchino Roshi, who used to teach here in California, he, he used to talk about the Sagaki uh, ceremony, right? How to deal with negative things, negative parts of phenomena for expanding awareness to the darkness Right, awareness is expanded um, into existence and to what is unseen, unknown, unthought. The negative, the negative is another positive side. The negative is another positive side. And it's pointing at the paradox of reality as seen by Buddhism. Right? Awareness is already pure and we expand our practice of compassion in space as well as time with this ceremony. And when the ceremony's done in the Zen tradition, the person leading it says, welcome hungry ghosts. Welcome, welcome to the hungry ghosts, meaning those whose spirits aren't peaceful. Welcome hungry ghosts, be at ease. Uh, the vaguely known, the unconscious, and the unknown. Receive the best food. Welcome. Be safe. <clears throat> and he also said that the process of the ceremony, or it is also said that the process of the ceremony is a settling uh, a, of, a, of a protected space of a, excuse me, setting of a protective space. Um, inviting the shadow in, in a, a ceremonial space in which it can be safely held. And meeting it with everyday kindness through our bodhisattva vow, through our bodhisattva practice. And it's the enactment of the deepest kind of compassion the deepest kind of compassion. And in practice, we have to be able to enter hell for the benefit of suffering beings, whether it's ourselves or someone else. And again, it's not what we publicize when you first come to Buddhism, right? But it is something that's taught about the dukkha of reality, the difficulty of reality, that we bring compassion to all the suffering of reality, both our own and other people's. And part of that suffering is also often around death or whatever remains um, unreleased when we die. And this goes on to say, the deepest compassion is to feed the hungry and nourish the unsatisfied in body, speech, and mind. When, whenever the opportunity presents itself. And so it's pointing at part of 
what we're doing here, which is uh, starting to uncover our compassion for ourselves and for others who will deal with what we're focusing on here, which is death and dying and the impermanence of bodily life, which is in, in uh, modern terms characterized by you know, 151,600 people dying each day, which you can get as information on the web now. <clears throat> Remember, um, I, I think a hundred years ago, I think they wouldn't have had that kind of information at all, right? Like how many people died today, right, in the world? And I'm not, I'm not sure when they started to get those kind of statistics, but we live in a modern, a different world now. And so this is part of our reality. And death is not new, right? Death has been happening ever since human beings appeared on this planet. And of course, death is, was happening before human beings appeared. All living beings are born and live for a moment or a while and die. It's part of the deal, as far as I can tell. If, you, if there's a physical body or any form of physical body, whether it's an, a human or a, or a mammal or a whale or a dog or a, you know, or a reptile, a crocodile, or, or whether it's really big, you know, like whale-like animals or elephants, you know, they all live for a while and then they die. And it's, it's true of insects also, right? The little insects we see, they may, they may live very short lives, a day or three days or a few hours. Or, and of course, we could all go on. There's more. I mean, we could talk about certain, any kind of living thing. It lives for a while and then it's gone. And the Buddha was aware of this. The Buddha also uh, was a human being. In, in my mind, in my heart, in my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful things about Buddha is he was a human being. He wasn't a god. He wasn't a deva from another realm or another world. Or When he was after he was awakened, he was walking and somebody, people could see this guy was radiant. And they, and they asked him, well, what are you? You know, are you a God or are you a Deva? Are you a holy, per holy something? And when he answered, all he said is, I am awake. That's all he said. And I, I just love the simplicity of that and the clarity of that and the fact that he pointed to that potential for all of us as human beings to awaken to our nature, to the potential of who and what we are. And so the Buddha 
also he had some uh, see if I can remember the word cities is the word S-I-D-D-H-I cities and it means powers or capacities you know it's a little bit more altered capacities than we all might realize were have possible for us but we all have some of that we all have our cities and he had very strong cities because he was very free and very awake and um, and so he knew he was going to die he knew before he was going to die he was going to die which is not um, uh, actually uncommon in the Buddhist tradition but at that time he was uh, he was um, the leader of a big Sangha who people who over his lifetime had collected around him because they were touched by him or moved by him or they awakened in his presence. If you read the Buddhist texts, the most um, realization happens by people hanging out with the Buddha. And it's, it's interesting. And he only, sta really, he starts teaching meditation because not everybody just wakes up by hanging out with him. And so he teaches meditation for the rest of us. Um, that's one version. Um, but he, uh, the last um, um, teaching, sutta, that is about is the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, right? Nibbana is Nirvana, right? And um, Maha is great. And it's the great last awakening of the Buddhas is his death, right? That's the story of his death. Maha, great Parinibbana, great awakening, is, is the story of his dying. And that's the last story in his life in the text. And what's what I find so interesting in the story, when you read the story, he goes around to all the places where um, uh, communities have developed that followed his teachings. And he goes around and he, little bit, he's saying goodbye, although not everybody knows he's going to die. Some people he tells that they, they get, oh, he's come here because he's leaving soon, meaning dying soon. But he goes because he wants to, um, he keeps teaching what he taught, which is the Eightfold Noble Path, and asking people, what's important to you? What do you care about? What do you want to give your life to, given that it's a short life, right? What do you value? What do you love? What do you want to do with your time? That's inherent in the teaching of him going around on the Mahaparinibbana Sutta and saying goodbye to everybody. And so in some sense, we could say, oh, the Buddha's here right now, and he's saying goodbye to all of us. And the same archetypal question is part of what arises as we contemplate our death, which is, what do we care about? What's important? What do we want to do with our life? What do we want to give ourselves to? And it doesn't mean, oh, you'll immediately find the answer, but 
part of practice is living with the question. That's how investigation works. Sayadaw Uteshaniya, who talks a lot about investigation, he says, oh, don't, you don't have to answer the question. Live with the question. And then the question will answer itself. <clears throat> and so I've found that this contemplation of death to be a very, very important part of my practice. And I'm, let's see if I can think how many years I've been practicing now. You know, 30 years, something like that, I've been practicing. And, uh, and, and a contemplation of death has been part of that almost the whole time. I, was, I became a hospice volunteer as soon as I heard about the Zen Hospice Project. Actually, I was sitting on a retreat, uh, a long retreat when they started, and I came back and found out that Zen Hospice Project had started in San Francisco, and you could volunteer, and so I volunteered, and I, I kept calling up, and you couldn't text back then because there was no text. Or you couldn't email because there was no email back then. So you had to use the phone all the time. And these were like phones you dialed. So it was, it was a while ago. And, um, and I kept calling up and leaving this message. I'd like to come in and volunteer. I'd like to. And I kept not getting a call back. And finally, after like eight tries, I got a call back. And the guy said, well, you know, you, you know, we, you know yeah, okay, come in. I'll meet with you. And Frank Ostaseski, who was one of the founders of Zen Hospice Project and is an old friend of mine now, he had me come in and he wanted to meet me because he wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy and that if, that if I was going to work with anybody who was dying, you know, that I didn't make it worse, basically. <laughs> and... <clears throat> And Franco, um, I remember he sat, interviewed me, he was checking, you know, what would you do if this happened? What would you do if that happened? And I'm like, uh, you know, I, di I didn't know what I would do, but I knew not to say the wrong thing. That much I knew. So, so he said, okay, okay, okay. And then finally he said, well, we already did our training of people, so we can't really let you go be with someone who's dying, but you could help in other ways. You could go pick up medicines or get supplies and things like that that are needed. And I said, sure, I'm happy to do whatever is needed. And, and then we said goodbye. And then like, <laughs> it was like four days later, he called me up. He said, could you come in and do a shift with someone who's, you know, who's dying? And I said, uh, sure, I could do that. I had, a f I had my own little business that I could be flexible with. And, uh, and I said, sure. And he said, well, can you come in uh, tomorrow afternoon? And I'm like, sure, it was Sunday afternoon. I'm like, sure, I can do that. And, uh, and I came in and I thought, okay, Frank, Frank will explain what to do and what you do and teach me a little bit and I go and I go to Zen Center because this is before Zen Hospice had its own building and all that stuff it just it just was in Zen Center 
and there was a woman in, in bed named Stella, and uh, Stella was dying. And uh, Frank brought me in and introduced me to Stella. And then he said, okay, I have to go now. And he left. And that was my training. Like, he put me in the room and left me there. And so, you know, and Stella was big woman lying in bed. And, uh, you know, asked me some questions. And I did some things for her. And finally she asked me some questions. I said, well, Stella, I have to be honest. I don't really know what I'm doing. And she was, she was great. Stella said, oh, it's okay, dearie. We all need a little help sometime. And she taught me what to do because she taught me what did she need and could I do it. And that's, of course, how we learn everything is actually by doing it. And it was a very moving and very powerful practice to hang out with Stella and just be there. And she was dying, and we were would mostly sit and look out the window. That's all we would do. And then there were a lot of other things that happened. Her brother showed up from Texas, and he'd never even heard of something like Zen Center, let alone been around all these people in black robes, and and he was in cowboy boots and a Texas hat. And, he was, he was a beautiful guy, and it was beautiful to watch the, the blessing that happened of his sister being cared for in this really lovely way and how it impacted him to see that even though it was culturally dystonic for him. It wasn't what he was used to in any way, and it didn't matter. And, he, and there was a memorial at, now I'm having memories, so you're going to hear one. Um, uh, there was a memorial after Stella died and with a lot of people who cared for her, including myself. And his, her brother was there. And it was a big circle. And he had a big thing of flowers, big thing of flowers. And people were going around talking about their experience of Stella and what happened or something. And, and it got to him and he said, well... I got some flowers here, y'all. And the flowers are for Stella. And they're not just for Stella. The flowers are for friendship and kindness because you were kind and you were fr friendly. And he said, and, and some of these flowers, they're just flowers. Which is a total Zen teaching in my opinion. <laughs> So, so my experience with death has been a practice everywhere in hospice and many with many different people who had nothing to do with Buddhism, uh, and also personally with my family, my parents, with my mother dying, my father dying, and spending time with them, being with them, trying to be helpful when, when they were dying, as they were dying. And, uh, and all the different humbling experiences about it. 
when my father died. My father lived to old age, 91, you know, which is like, you can't complain. At least I can't complain. 91, that's like, you know, that's a full life. And, you know, and we all die. And But it was really interesting to be with him and his body and... Uh, Elad was saying about touching the body, how important that is. And, and I felt that with my father too, because seeing his body die, I realized, oh, he wasn't there anymore. And I was so happy, actually, because I'd been thinking he was an old man for so long. And I realized he wasn't an old man anymore. And I'd had this reified or concretized idea in my head of who he was that broke apart. My idea let go when I realized he wasn't an old man anymore. And I, re and I really got he'd been a different person every day of my life, actually. You know, and of course, all the different seasons of my life, he'd been a different person. You know, he'd been, you know a younger man and then middle-aged and then a little older and then and and then he'd been an old man but I'd been holding him at the end as an old man and that really let go and I could feel all the appreciation and love for who he was which wasn't any one thing and also I mean yeah, you're definitely getting some stories tonight. My mother, when my mother died, um, she, my mother had three sons. I'm one of three, three boys. And, and uh, we were all there when she died and had been taking care of her. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, at the end, we, we were gonna, we, we didn't wanna just let her go off to, to the burial. We wanted to wash her and keep her body there for, you know, half a day or something, which is not quite okay often in America. They want, they want the body to go, you know, and the longest I've ever gotten to sit with a body in, in America is three days, and we did that a little undercover. But, um, but, we, but we thought we would wash our mother's body, which is a very traditional thing to do when somebody dies. And of course, I hadn't seen my mother naked since I was a baby, right? And so then I'm looking at her body and I'm seeing her breasts and I'm having this reverie about, oh, these are the breasts that I nursed on, right? And I'm having this very fond reverie. And then I realized, like I kind of woke up in the middle of the reverie and realized, oh yeah, she didn't breastfeed me at all. And uh, it was a time when, for some reason, they were telling women not to breastfeed, and so she didn't. And it was like, it was so interesting to break up from the reverie, the ideas we have about our lives and our relationships and people. And I still um, loved her very much, even though she didn't breastfeed me. And so part of practicing with death is a very traditional Buddhist practice where the Buddha would teach as part of death, a part of his death. And then the encouragement to practice with death, marana sati in the, 
in the first foundation of mindfulness, it's part of the practice. And we'll go deeper into that, the actual specifics of that on another day. <clears throat> Here's what, um, what Ajahn Chah said to someone who came to him uh, excuse me, didn't come to him, who requ requested that he come because they were dying, uh, a householder. And so he went to visit them and he said, and he said this, he said, now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. During the time I am speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it were the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. Today I have brought nothing material of substance to offer you, only dharma. So this is for someone who's dying. He said, here's what I have. Here's what I can offer. Here's the dharma. He said, listen well. Understand that the Buddha himself, with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. The Buddha could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is called Saka Dharma, the truth, the truth of this body. And it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. It is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and to come to term with its nature. And he, he, he just so makes this a normal part of our lives. He said, the Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and mind so as to see their impersonality. Im yeah, impersonality, impersonalness, and see that neither of them is me or mine. That neither of them is me or mine. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. Even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples are in the same position. They differ from us only in one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw that it could be no other way. And so there are different stories in Buddhism, some of which I'll read to you now, about how people relate to death and dying. And some of them are very moving, and some of them are uh, powerful, and some of them are humorous also. <clears throat> so this is from about Suzuki Roshi when he was dying here at Zen Center. One of his um, disciples writes that he went up to Z Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. <clears throat> and he was in bed, extremely weak, 
his skin discolored. Um, he bowed, and I did the same. And then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, he said, don't grieve for me. Don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. Just very simple, very direct. He gave a very powerful teaching as he was dying. Don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. And so he discovered who he is over his life of practice, Suzuki Roshi. And he so beautifully impacted a whole world of beings, especially people here in the Bay Area. Well, this is a story, it's a common story that often um, monks would be asked to um, write their last poem when they knew they were going to die. Right? And so there's a story about Tawi, who announced, tomorrow I'm going. Right to his the monk uh, to monks and nuns and lay people, and his attendant asked him for a death verse, because that was part of the tradition, and he said and he said kind of um, uh, humorously he said oh yeah without a verse I couldn't die, right? and he wrote birth is thus, birth is thus. Death is thus. Verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> right? Which is, <laughs> you know, which I appreciate that the normalizing of death allows us to bring all of our humanness in relation to it. And I'm not saying we always laugh or it's always funny, but once in a while, yeah, it can be, um, we can laugh. And, and that's one of the things I definitely saw in hospice is I would be with people dying and we would laugh and they would laugh. I mean, it wasn't just me, we, we would laugh because life is funny in some ways. Or this more poignant is about Isa, the great Buddhist poet, about the death of his children. He's, and it said that the couples, um, his, his family, the, the woman he was with and himself, the couple's firstborn child died shortly after birth. Shortly after birth. And then they had a da daughter who died less than two and a half years later after birth. Inspired, inspiring Isa to write this haiku. And the haiku goes, the world of dew, D-E-W, the world of dew, which is really pointing at the, at the, at the uh, uh, transient world, right, of, of our reality. The world of dew is the world of do, and yet, and yet. And when I hear this, I'm moved by, he's pointing at, he sees the impermanence and the, 
emptiness of everything. It's all a world of do. It's just appearing and disappearing magically even, mysteriously, right? Each day, each thing, each moment. Where does everything come from really? Right? I know the scientists have their ideas, but where do their ideas come from? Where, where does even molecules or atoms, where do they come from? Right? Where, do, where, did the, where did the universe come from, right? The Big Bang, wasn't that, isn't that what they call it? The Big Bang happened or something? And, you know, there was nothing and then there was something, like, you know, and so it's a world of do, and yet, and yet, there's something so poignant here in this magical, mysterious world of do. <clears throat> and then in the Tibetan tradition it said, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can actually use our lives to prepare for death. We can use our lives to prepare for death. We do not have to wait for the painful death of someone close to us or the shock of terminal illness to force us into looking at our lives. Nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. It's just beautiful what they're saying here. Both ways. We don't have to wait till something happens to know we're going to die and let that start to impact what do we want to do with the time we have, whatever amount of time we have, whether it's, you know, 70 years or 50 years or 40 years, 30, 20, 10, 5, 2, 1, 6 months, a year, however much time we have left, what do we want to do with the time we have while we're alive? What do we care about? He said, so he says that, it, 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 it allows us to look into our lives and to manifest what, what will we want to do now, or be, or with who, or how. And then he, but he also says, nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. And I love that, that he says it, this is from uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, he says, to meet the unknown, because who knows what's going to happen when we die. And please, if you know, tell me. I'm really curious. And I have my own experience. I've had a, what, what people call a near-death experience, so I know something, a few things. But I also know that I don't know. And that's probably the best thing that I know. I, I got a little glimpse of how wild reality actually is way more than I thought I knew, way, way more. And so, and he goes on, he says, we can begin here and now to find meaning in our life. We can make of, each, of every moment an opportunity to change and prepare wholeheartedly, precisely, and with peace of mind for death and eternity. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, as a whole, as a completeness, 
right, where death is the beginning of another chapter of life. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. And so what we're doing here this week is looking at a mirror we may not have looked at closely before. Or we may have some sense of, and we're looking at it in a more full way, a more attuned way, a more present way, with the fullness of our um, individual and collective awareness, mindfulness, together. And let's see what we discover. Let's see what we see. I just want to say, as part of looking in the mirror, often we have um, judgments about how we look when we look in a mirror conventionally. It's like we look, I looked in the mirror, I thought, oh God, I need a haircut and this and that. Uh, I'm getting old and look at this and there's wrinkles and all. You know, it's easy to think that way when we look in the mirror. But as we were saying in the inquiry, watch out for the judging mind at all as we look in this mirror because death is a fierce mirror to look at and to look into and to begin to discover the reality of what it is to be alive and be a human being and to wake up through this form, this amazing uh, um, um, preciousness that we call human life. Let's sit for a couple minutes.
Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. for your kind attention. We have a period of walking meditation now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.